I want to dedicate this special pre-Pesach podcast episode in merit of the complete and total and speedy recovery of all of our Jewish brethren all over the world who are stricken by this horrific illness, by this horrific virus, and especially want to mention a relative of ours, Mordechai ben Freda Reza. Pesach, of course, is a time of redemption. Pesach is a time of salvation. May the Almighty redeem and save all of us and provide health, and security and stability to us and to the entire Jewish nation. So in a couple of days, we're going to be celebrating the festival of Pesach. Pesach, of course, marks the Exodus, and it marks the founding of our nation, of our religion. Jewish people spend several hundred years in Egypt. They're enslaved, they're oppressed, they're tormented. And then, almost overnight... You have these miracles, the arrival of the Savior in Moshe and Moses, and the Exodus happens, and miracles everywhere you look, there's miracles. And then 50 days later, the Jewish nation is coalesced around the mountain, around Mount Sinai. We get the Torah, and we are forever the Almighty's nation. And this is not just a one-time event that we celebrate as if it happened yesteryear, as if this is something that was needed only at its time, there is a juncture in the calendar that is the days of freedom, the days of leaving bondage that we relive every year. In fact, if you look at the beginning of uh, of Genesis, when the angels come to Lot to take him out, to save him from Sodom and Gomorrah. So we find out in Rashi and the commentators in the Talmud that that was Pesach time. And both Abraham and Lot are eating matzah, which is really odd because Pesach hadn't happened yet. The Exodus hasn't ha- hadn't happened yet. So why are they eating matzah on Pesach before the Exodus happened? If the Exodus and Pesach and Passover was just a celebration of an event, well, it would have made sense to eat matzah before that event even happened. But I say just tell us that the Almighty designed the calendar, designed the yearly cycle, that certain days have auspicious powers. And days of Pesach are days that the, the power of the day, the essence of the day, is freedom from bondage. And that is manifested by the matzah. And that is why once that day arrived, all the factors were aligned to facilitate the exodus. And therefore, when we revisit that day, it's important for us to try to understand what it's really all about and what role we have to play and what opportunity is available for us so that we can too also tap into the power of the day and really maximize the impact that it can have on our lives. The Pesach holiday, the exodus from Egypt, is arguably the most central event in the Torah, in Jewish history, maybe even in world history. And it's one that we're constantly revisiting. Multiple times a day we say the Shema, and we reference, I am the Lord your God, I took you out of the land of Egypt. Of course, it is featured right at the very beginning of the Ten commandments, and there's many mitzvahs that when we do the mitzvah, 
we reference the Exodus. We made Kiddush on Friday night. We talk about the Exodus. All the holidays, all the festivals are Zecher Litzias Mitzrayim as a remembrance for the Exodus from Egypt. Obviously, there's something very powerful about this day that really bleeds out to all of Jewish life. So what I want to do today, I want to try to isolate the essence of Pesach, the essence of the festival of the Exodus that we are going to experience again in a couple of days. And once we understand the essence of Pesach, then we can kind of understand how everything else fits in to that idea. We'll start from the central point and we'll move progressively outwards to see how everything really fits into the central theme the theme of Pesach, the theme as we say in the prayers, Zman Cheruseinu, the time of our freedom, that is the essence of the day. What exactly does that mean and how does it play out? So I think maybe a good way to frame the discussion, start off maybe with a series of questions that really will allow us to maybe revisit this wonderful day and this wonderful festival. So what are we celebrating on Pesach? Ostensibly, we're celebrating the fact that we were slaves, we were oppressed, we were mistreated in Egypt for centuries. And then overnight, the Almighty does all these miracles and he sends us Moshe and then we leave Egypt and we're free. Amazing, what a celebration. That's how we look at the story. But here's a question. We were enslaved in Egypt. Who enslaved us? Who allowed us to be subjected, to be subjugated, to be subservient, to be enslaved by the Egyptians? Not only did God allow that to happen, according to scripture, he foretold that that's going to happen. He necessitated that that's going to happen. He arranged all the chess pieces. He orchestrated everything to make sure the Jewish people end up in Egypt, oppressed, enslaved, subservient to the Egyptians. So why are we celebrating the fact that the Almighty saved us from a predicament that he put us into in the first place? It seems really odd that we're saying, oh, thank you, God, for taking us out of this disaster that you put us into. So I think it, it, it's it's an important question. Why are we focusing so much on the Exodus when we recognize that the problem that the Exodus was resolving was a problem that was foisted upon us precisely by the Almighty to whom we're giving credit for the Exodus? I think an interesting way to kind of frame a question about this Exodus, what's the Exodus all about? We're celebrating God. Didn't God put us into that problem to begin with? So how exactly are we supposed to thank God for saving us from a problem that he put us into? That's question A. We're going to have a lot of questions, so we're not going to name them or number them. That's an interesting question to kind of open the the discussion. I want to ask another question. This is a question that came up to me, popped into my head just yesterday. We're told throughout Jewish literature and throughout Jewish philosophy that everything that happens in the Exodus is a template, a model for all future redemptions. So we're reading about redemption 
in the first time it happened in the in the Exodus the Egyptian model, if you will, but there's going to be future redemptions. The Jewish people are once again going to be subjected or oppressed, mistreated, and the Almighty is going to intervene, save us, and whatever happens in Egypt is going to be the model for the events that are going to happen in future redemptions. So the question that I had was, we're told multiple times in Jewish sources, in fact, it's even found in Scripture, that when Mashiach comes, when this final redemption that we're awaiting, when that comes, it's going to happen suddenly. No one's going to be ready for it. It's going to happen at a time where no one's prepared for it. In fact, the words that the Talmud use, it's going to happen when everyone's thinking about everything else and no one's ready for it. No one's prepared for it. No one recognizes that it's imminent. That's when it's going to happen. When everyone's focusing on something else. And the question that I had was, wait a minute, how is that following the Egyptian model? What happens before the Exodus? We see a series of plagues that are so miraculous, that are so targeted. Obviously, the Jewish nation has a whole year to prepare for the Exodus. It's not like overnight the Jewish people are suddenly saved. Oh no, a year earlier, Moshe arrives, actually a year and a half earlier, Moshe arrives, and he starts doing these miracles, and he's turning water into blood, he's throwing a staff on the floor, he's turning it to a snake, and before you know it, all this firepower is being targeted at the Egyptians. Their water supplies turn to blood, and there's frogs everywhere, and there's lice everywhere, and we know the story, 10 miraculous plagues. And the Jewish people, they're sitting pretty. They're totally inoculated from these plagues. Obviously, the Jewish people recognize that something is amiss. Obviously, the Jewish people recognize that redemption is imminent. So how can we say that Mashiach, the redemption that we're looking forward to, is something that happens suddenly when we're least expecting it, when apparently the Egyptian redemption happened after the Jewish nation has been ready for it and primed for it, and the events that are surrounding are all pointing at it for up to a year beforehand. I want to ask a third question. If you look at the story of the Exodus, it really unfolds in in an unusual fashion. So the book of Exodus begins, of course, chapter 1, the Jewish nation is enslaved and tormented and oppressed. Chapter 2, we have the birth of a hero. Moshe's born. And he's born in, in a very unusual way. And he's raised in a very unusual fashion. He's adopted by the princess of Egypt. He grows up in the lap of, of Pharaoh, of lap of luxury. He's a prince of Egypt. And then when he grows up, he has this epiphany where he defends the Jews. He defends his brethren. Pharaoh wants him killed and he has to escape. And we, Pick up his story almost 80 years later. He's already an adult. He's by the burning bush and God appears to him, gives him a prophecy outside of the land of Egypt. Okay, it's time to go back to the land of Egypt and rescue your brethren. And that begins a very lengthy negotiation 
Moshe says, I'm not worthy. Moshe says, what am I going to tell them? They won't believe me. What name of God is going to be used? Send Aaron instead. A whole list of objections that Moshe throws out to God. Finally, Moshe is convinced. He's hired for the job. He was reluctant at first, but now he's on board and he begins his march to Egypt. He takes his family initially. He gets permission from his father-in-law. We're told that he rendezvous with Aaron at Mount Sinai. Aaron tells him, why are you bringing your wife and kids to the war zone? Send them back. So Tzipporah and Moshe's two sons go back to Midian, go back to, to Yisro, to Jethro. And Moshe and Aaron head to Egypt. They convene all the elders of the Jews. They convince them. The nation believes. And now it's time to head to Pharaoh. And we're told they go to Pharaoh and they have with them an army, a cavalcade of 70 elders of the Jews. And everyone's all excited. We're going to show Pharaoh what we really mean. We're going we're to speak to Pharaoh. We'll, we'll tell him. We'll give him a piece of our mind. And as they're walking to Pharaoh, people get cold feet. And we lose an elder here. We lose an elder there. And they arrive at the palace doors. And it's just Moses and Aaron. And they go inside and they present their evidence to Pharaoh. They take a stick to throw it on the ground, turns it to a snake. Oh my goodness, you have our attention now? Well, not really. That's trivial in the land of the sorcerers. Everyone in Egypt is a sorcerer. That's something you teach in first grade. Pharaoh calls out all his necromancers and all his sorcerers and all his magicians. And they do the exact same thing. No one's impressed. After Moshe and Aaron make their pitch, it's time to let the Jewish people go, Pharaoh says it must mean that the nation is not, they're not being sufficiently busy. And he decides to withhold critical ingredients from the brick-making process, but keep the expected quota the same. So he just increases the work, increases the servitude, instead of decreasing it. So obviously Moshe feels like something's wrong. The Almighty sent me to go save the Jewish people. And instead, not only did I not save them, things have exacerbated. Things have gotten worse. And he comes to the Almighty, he comes to God, and he complains. Since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he did evil to this people, but you didn't rescue them. You promised us salvation, and instead we got more work. So God responds, wait and see. You wait and see, you'll see what happens. That's the last verse of the first Parsha of the book of Exodus, the book of Shmos, Parsha Shmos. You open up Parsha's Vaera, and again, the Almighty is commissioning Moses, okay, it's time to go back to Pharaoh. And he begins by comparing Moshe to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I made a promise, go tell the Jewish people I'm going to save them. And he uses five different languages of salvation. I'm going to take them out. I'm going to save them. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to take them. And I'm going to bring them to the land. So these are five different levels of redemption. And that's the five cups that we drink on the Seder, the four cups that we drink, and the one cup that we put for Elijah. Because the last term of salvation is a reference to the future redemption. Okay, so now Moshe has been convinced again to once again accept the mantle of, of leadership, to once again accept the responsibility of saving the Jewish people. It's time to go speak to the Jewish people again. And then verse 9 we read, this is chapter 6, verse 9 of, of Exodus. And Moshe spoke accordingly 
to the children of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of shortness of breath and hard work. So Moshe is told, okay, we've suffered a little bit more. Now it's time to go. Go speak to the Jewish people. Go tell them it's, it's, it's going to happen this time. First time was a false start. Now it's actually going to happen. So obviously the nation needs to be on board. God tells them, go speak to the Jewish people. They need to be on board. But what happens? The message falls flat. The people are so encumbered with work that they can't even breathe. They have shortness of breath and they have such hard work. So they couldn't even hear what Moshe is saying. And then God says to Moshe, okay, now go to Pharaoh. Your mission of speaking to the Jewish people is complete. So when you read this, it raises obvious questions. At this juncture in the Exodus, at this juncture in the story, God tells Moses it's imperative that we need the approval of the Jewish people to proceed. So Moshe has to go speak to the Jewish people. He has to get their approval. has to get them on board. And he goes to speak to them, and they are so busy with work that they don't even hear the words of Moshe. And God says, okay, mission accomplished. Now it's time to go speak to Pharaoh. I don't get it. If it's necessary to speak to the Jewish people, then that wasn't accomplished because they didn't hear what Moshe had to say. And if it's not necessary to get the Jewish people on board, what's the point of having God tell Moshe, go speak to the Jewish people? This whole this whole exchange seems to be a total failure. Yet, the next verse tells us, okay, now it's time to go speak to Pharaoh. So why is Moshe being told to go speak to the Jewish people when that is totally futile as evidenced by the fact that they don't even hear what, they don't even hear what Moshe has to say. And nevertheless, the very next thing that, that happens in the story is that Moshe has told, okay, now go speak to Pharaoh. It's a third question that we can pose to again try to, try to pierce the story to understand what's actually happening beneath the simple reading of the story. I want to transition to what we do on Pesach itself. The name of the festival, as we mentioned, is Zman Cherusein, or the time of our freedom. But the festival has another name. This is not unusual. There's many festivals in the Jewish calendar that have multiple names because it's highlighting multiple central themes of those days. It's called Zman Cherusein, the time of our freedom. It's called, of course, Pesach, Passover. It's also called Chag HaMatzos, the festival of the matzos. And that's the central mitzvah of the festival is to eat the matzah. It's the one mitzvah in the Torah that we're told, that we can still do it today, to eat something. There's many mitzvahs that revolve around eating, but most of them don't apply unless there's a temple to eat sacrifices and the like. But to, the mitzvah to eat matzah is a mitzvah to eat something which is still applicable today. This matzah is a very unusual food. It's unusual because it's, on one hand, very simple. It's just flour and water, and that's it. Yet, conversely, it's actually very expensive. I bought matzah this year. It's $31 a pound. $31 for a pound of matzah. It seems odd that you have 
such a simple formula, simple ingredients. All you all you need is flour and water, and you mix them up together. You make a dough. You put it in the oven really quickly, and you have your matzah. And yet, it's it's very expensive. That's one question that we could ask. But if you look in the Haggadah, the Haggadah, of course, is the book that accompanies us throughout the Seder night. You'll find conflicting descriptions as to what the matzah represents. We're told that the Jewish people prepared the dough when they were still in Egypt, and then they left Egypt so fast that the dough had no time to rise. And by the time they were already on their way out, they baked the matzah, and it was still within the 18-minute window from when they produced their dough, and therefore they had this matzah that it didn't have time to uh, to leaven. The, the leaven had no, no, no time to rise. And then they ate the matzah after they left Egypt for about a month, and once the matzah supply was exhausted, then they got the manna. And we're told, incidentally, in the Talmud, that the matzah that they ate didn't taste like our matzah, which tastes like sawdust. Oh no, it tasted delicious. It tasted like manna. So we're told in the Talmud. But it's interesting, we have matzah on one hand, it's being produced, at least partially, in Egypt, and it's being consumed after the Exodus already happened, once freedom ostensibly is obtained. But in addition, in the Haggadah, we're told specifically, right when you begin the Haggadah, we say, Halach Ma'anya, this is the bread of the poor people that our forebearers ate in Egypt. Is this the food of affliction? Is this the food of freedom? Apparently, it's the food that we ate in Egypt when we were enslaved to Pharaoh. Okay, that's the beginning of the Haggadah. Fast forward later on, towards the middle of the of the Seder procedures, we lift the matzah and we say, why are we eating this matzah? Matzah, zusha, ana, ochl, mashum, ma. Why are we eating the matzah? And the answer is, because when we left Egypt, when we were freed, when we were saved, we left so fast, in such a hurry, and therefore... The, the bread didn't have time to rise, and thus this represents the Exodus. The Exodus, apparently, and the bondage are exactly opposites. And yet we're told that the matzah represents the bread of affliction, the bread of poor people that we ate in Egypt when we were enslaved. Conversely, we're told the matzah is the food of redemption, the food of freedom, that symbolizes the swift exodus, and it's the food that we ate after we left. Which one is it? Does the matzah represent affliction, bondage, servitude, our time in Egypt, or does it represent freedom? Does it represent the fact that we left Egypt, we were saved, we were spared, and we were brought to God's, so to speak, Embrace, we were made God's nation and we were no longer subject to Egypt. This is a fundamental question about matzah, which of course symbolizes the festival. And again, apparently, it seems to be contradictory. On one hand, we're told it's the food of Egypt. On the other hand, we're told it's the food of freedom. This is a question that many of the commentators ask. 
and we're going to suggest an answer that's going to – or an approach at least that's going to answer all of our questions and explain the festival of Pesach in a new light and that will also explain to us so – it will answer all our questions and will also explain to us what the matzah really represents. So we're going to suggest an approach that's going to view the entire Egyptian experience – as the episode or the saga, if you will, of the founding of our nation, we're going to argue that both the enslavement and the subsequent resultant exodus are part of forming and molding the Jewish nation. Now, what's interesting is that the very first mention of the Egyptian servitude is not found in the book of Exodus. It's actually found in the book of Genesis. And if you read the context of when it first appears, there are obvious questions that are going to jump out right away. It appears in chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. And the story is following Abraham. At that time, he's not called Abraham. He's just called Abram. Isaac has not yet been born. He has not yet been circumcised. But he's already God's favorite person. And the chapter begins where Abram has a vision, has a prophecy. And God tells him, I'm going to protect you and your reward is great. And Abraham begins to protest. What do I have? I don't have anything. I have no children. All I have is my followers, my students, my assistant, Eliezer, and everything that you're prepared for me is great, but once I die, I only have him to inherit me because I have no heir. And God promises, no, you're going to have an heir, you're going to have your own child, and they will be your legacy. And he takes him outside and brings him up to heaven and says, okay, count the stars. Can you count the stars? You can't count the stars. You won't be able to count your biological, natural children either. And then Abraham or Abraham tells God, how do I know that I am truly going to inherit the land of Israel and have this great nation? And then God tells him, God answers this question by telling him, okay, take a bunch of animals and cut them in half. And put half on one side, half on the other side. And then we're going to make a pact. We're going to make a covenant. We're going to make a treaty. And this is called the covenant of the parts, the Brisbane Absarim. And then in verse 12, Abraham has another prophecy. I want to read you this prophecy. The sun was about to set and a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And then a fear, darkness a great darkness was falling upon him. And God said to Abraham, you should know with certainty that your children, your offspring, will be foreigners, will be aliens in a land that is not their own. And they will enslave them and they will oppress them for 400 years. But also the nation that they will serve, I shall judge. And after that, they will leave with great wealth. This is the first reference of the Jewish experience in Egypt, Abraham is told, 
two apparently very different prophecies. On one end, he's told he's going to have children. How many children is he going to have? He's going to have children. They're going to spawn a nation that's going to be so numerous that it'll be like the stars. He can't count them. Well, that's an amazing thing to hear. Moreover, he's told that his children will inherit the land, the most coveted land, the land we're called today, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, the holiest and most spiritually sublime land in the world. Is that a great thing to hear from God? Sounds amazing. But then God says to him, you should also know that's not going to be so pretty. It's not going to be so pleasant. Your descendants will have to spend 400 years in a foreign land, and they're going to be suffering, and they're going to be enslaved, and they're going to be oppressed. Oh, but don't worry. When they leave, they'll make a buck out of it. They'll leave with great wealth. And also the nation that's going to oppress them, I'm going to judge them. So there's a lot of questions that we could ask about this. Again, this is the first time in Scripture there's reference to the Egyptian experience. What's really odd, I think the first question that we have to ask is the juxtaposition of these two parts of the prophecy. On one hand, there's this momentous blessing. You will be the father of this great nation, the nation that I'm going to adore. I'm going to choose to be my own, the chosen nation. You can have the land of Israel. Amazing. But there's a price you have to pay. There is a prerequisite, a precondition of that. You're going to have to suffer terribly. What is the connection between the terrible bad tidings of the Egyptian enslavement and the wonderful good tidings of the fact that you're going to be the father of this great nation? Now, if we only read till here, this is where we stopped in the story, and we've read everything that came up previously, and we had to guess what Abraham's going to do, we would say that Abraham's going to launch into a prayer to forestall or to eliminate this terrible decree. That's what you would imagine. What happens when Abraham hears about the fate of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham pulls no, pulls no stops. Abraham takes all of his prayer ammunition and starts to pray. God says, you're going to destroy this, the sinners of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, maybe there's 50 righteous people. Maybe there's 45. Maybe there's 40. Maybe there's 30. Maybe there's 20. Maybe there's 10. Abraham is persistent in his prayer to try to intercede on behalf of the sinners of Sodom and Gomorrah. God tells him, your own children are going to spend hundreds of years suffering tremendously. And Abraham doesn't make a peep. Doesn't say, uh, can we reconsider that? Doesn't say, is there any way to avoid that? Doesn't pray. Doesn't do anything. Abraham shows tenacity in trying to save foreigners, sinners, city of Sodom and Gomorrah from destruction. God promises that there's this terrible verdict against his own children, his own descendants. And Abraham doesn't make even a nominal protest? Why is Abraham just accepting this as a given? And I think if you read the prophecy itself, there's other questions. 
you know, God's sweetening the deal. 400 years of suffering. But we're going to mitigate it a little bit. It's going to be attenuated a little bit. It's going to be sweetened a little bit. It's not going to be that bad. Because when they leave, the nation that's going to oppress them is going to be judged. You'll get some modicum of revenge. Excellent. And also, you're going to leave with great wealth. Fantastic. Where do I sign? Where do I sign to get 400 years of terrible enslavement and pain and torture and suffering and oppression of all kinds? But afterwards, you'll become rich. Doesn't seem like that is going to provide any measure of comfort or consolation or compensation for 400 years of national trauma, national enslavement. What is the significance that you're going to have great wealth when you are done? It's a very bizarre description of the, of the, of the first reference of the Exodus preceded by the enslavement and Abraham's behavior, Abraham's processing of this prophecy is also very odd, especially given how Abraham reacted when he was told that others are going to suffer. And when his own children are going to suffer, he seems to just accept it at face value. And let's fast forward a little bit now to the Exodus itself. The Exodus itself also has, I think, some very fundamental problems. Three times throughout the narrative talking about the plagues, we're told that the Egyptians and Pharaoh will learn a lesson. They'll learn a lesson that the Almighty has total control of everything. They'll know that I am God. It seems apparently that there is some sort of imperative to have the Egyptians learn a lesson. Isn't the Exodus about the Jewish people? Isn't the Exodus about the nation that needs salvation? And the way to get that is by forcing Pharaoh's hand, punishing him if necessary? Why is it important that Pharaoh and that the Egyptians know that I am Hashem. Now, if you actually read to the end of the story, you find out that the Egyptians are going to be completely pummeled and decimated. In fact, by the splitting of the sea, there's two opinions in Rashi. Either not a single Egyptian survived or one Egyptian survived. But regardless, this is a nation that has a death sentence upon it. They're all going to die. What is the enduring benefit of them coming to recognize faith, them coming to recognize the dominion of God. Now, what's also odd is that God tells Moshe, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to force his hand. I'm going to interfere with his free will. So much so that it raises you know, theological questions. That God's interfering with free will. How can we punish Pharaoh if, if he had no choice in the matter? That's, of course, a a subject that we've talked about in the past. But if the Exodus and the events that preceded it, if that was about forcing Pharaoh to let the Jewish people leave, why is God artificially lengthening the period that the Jewish people are in Egypt by hardening Pharaoh's heart? If Pharaoh wants the Jewish people, okay, mission accomplished. Let's leave. 
Pharaoh wants to send the Jewish people, and God says, no, I'm going to force you to keep them enslaved so that we could do more miracles. Clear evidence that the objective of the Exodus is not merely about forcing Pharaoh to let the Jewish people leave. There's something else at play. Now, if you look at Rashi, when Rashi comments on the hardening of the heart proposal of God or plan of God, Rashi says that this is for the Jewish people. For the Jewish people, God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart and force Pharaoh to acknowledge the Almighty's dominion and the fact that the Almighty is the only power that there is. If the Exodus was merely a convenient way to redeem the Jewish people, it was done in a a decidedly inconvenient or inconvenient fashion. And the fact that we're constantly revisiting it in our prayers, in the mitzvahs, in the liturgy of the holiday of the Shabbos, that is, again, great evidence to the fact that there's a lot more that's really happening. So with all those questions behind us, let's get to the central element of the festival and all the events that surround it. What happened in Egypt was the Jewish nation was being founded. The Jewish nation is not our version of nationhood, of nationalism. There's the French and there's the Germans and then there's the the Brits and maybe there's the Americans and every nation has their culture and has their society and has their history. No. There's something more fundamental at play here. The Jewish nation is God's nation. This is the nation that has a direct relationship with the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. He's close to us. We're close to him. We are his emissaries, his ambassadors to this world. We represent them here. We are described as being the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Meaning that we're going to fulfill a role that no other nation has. We're going to be the world's conscious. We're going to be the world's clergy. We're a kingdom of priests. There's something really unique about this nation that's not found in any other nation. Why? Why was our nation selected for this really important role? So, of course, it begins with Abraham. Abraham was someone that selected himself for that role of being the patriarch of this great nation. He said, I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to even put my life on the line to stand up for what I believe in. I'm willing to imperil my life for God. And God says, okay, I have a candidate to be the father of this nation. And of course, Abraham brings about Isaac, brings about Jacob. And then we have this three-link chain that's never going to get broken. And Jacob brings us the 12 tribes. And that, of course, begets the 70 souls that descend to Egypt. And we're off and rolling. We're going to have the groundwork, at least, for this great nation. But in order to achieve our nation's destiny, we need refinement. 
we need to have every scintilla of foreign influence, of idolatry even, if you will, because we come from an idolatrous pedigree. Everything has to be purged. Everything has to be cleansed. The equivalent of gold with a little bit of foreign alloys. We have a little bit of dirt. We have a little bit of bronze, a little bit of other stuff within this gold. It's time to cleanse the gold, to refine the gold, remove all the impurities. The 400 years in Egypt, which mathematically ended up as being 210, 210 years in Egypt, punctuated by the Exodus, that is the process of spiritually refining the nation to prepare them to be the nation of God, the holy nation, the kingdom of priests, fulfilling their destiny as being God's people, God's ambassadors to the world, the nation that's going to be the eternal nation, the nation that's going to be associated with the land of Israel, with the Torah, the nation that's going to bring the world to its perfection. This process, beginning to end, is creating that nation. It's not me saying this. Moses himself says that. Moses himself said that. If you look at the book of Deuteronomy, book of Devarim, chapter 4, verse 20, this is when Moshe is giving his last messages to the nation. And he describes the Egyptian experience, the enslavement, as a kur habarzel, an iron crucible. What's an iron crucible? So Rashi comments, it is a kli, a vessel that you purify and refine gold in it. The Egyptian experience was the iron crucible. We went in as gold. We emerged as gold. But over the course of those several centuries, the gold was refined. It wasn't fully refined when we went in. And when we emerged, when we came out, we were purified. The gold was perfectly ready for showtime. It's a tremendous insight in this description. The Jews, or at least the progenitors of the Jewish people, they were great. They were golden before they entered Egypt. But there were some slight imperfections. The gold wasn't perfect. In fact, the Talmud even lists three different reasons why Abraham was perfect, but not quite. There was still a little bit something lacking. His gold wasn't 100% pure. And over the course of several hundred years, this gold is undergoing purification to become ready to be the Almighty's people, to be that holy nation, to fulfill the destiny of Abraham. Thus, ergo, this enslavement period, it's not just mindless, needless suffering. There's something incredibly constructive about it as well. The gold is being refined. What is constructive about slavery? What is constructive about being subjected to the Egyptians? How is that purifying? Here's the insight. This is the insight that's going to explain everything and answer all of our questions. There's two steps to taking gold and refining it. There's two steps to taking a nation that's almost ready for prime time, almost ready for showtime, almost ready for Sinai, and getting them there. Step number one, 
the nation has to be honed and crafted into being perfect slaves. Step two, that servitude, that allegiance to the master has to be transferred from the human master to the divine master. For centuries, the nation is being conditioned to become total slaves of Pharaoh. And then over the course of the Exodus, there's going to be a systematic transference of allegiance from being slaves of Pharaoh to being slaves of God. The Jewish people, we describe ourselves as the chosen nation, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, the nation of Abraham. The way the Torah itself describes us is a nation that is totally, entirely subjected to God. In fact, just as an example, when a Jewish slave decides to prolong their servitude to their Jewish master, the verse in Exodus tells us that we bring them to the doorpost, we take a little um, a nail, we bore a hole in their ear, and then, and then they can work forever, they can work till the Oval, to the Jubilee uh, cycle. Why is a Jewish slave who wants to prolong their slavery, why are they... Why do they have their ear pierced? Why is their ear bored? So Rashi quotes the Talmud because this ear is supposed to be a device to absorb messages. This ear heard at Sinai, you are slaves of God. And this person wants to be a slave of a human? They didn't hear the message. And we're going to take the faulty organ and make a hole through it. There's something wrong with this organ. I read through the entire Sinai experience, the way it's told in the book of Exodus twice, the way it's described again in the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. Never once does it say that the Jewish people are slaves of God. Yet Rashi tells us, and the Talmud tells us, that at Sinai you're supposed to hear the message. What message are you supposed to hear? You're slaves of God. The answer is, is that at Sinai we're told the Torah. We're told the mitzvos. We're told the commandments of God. Who's God to give us commandments? Where does his authority stem from? The underlying message of Sinai, the underlying message of being a kingdom of priests and holy nation is submission to God, is total submission to God. If someone, for example, as an example, if someone let's say, is a candidate to convert. The Talmud talks about this. They want to convert to become Jewish. They have to undergo a similar experience to the Jewish people at the Exodus. Just as at the Exodus, there's a circumcision, there is an immersion in the mikvah, and then there's the Sinai experience. Sinai is, in many Jewish sources, compared to conversion. What if someone wants to convert and they say, you know what? There's one mitzvah out of 613. I just don't buy it. I just don't accept it. It's not for me. It's too hard. It's too difficult. Ah, I'm going to do 612 out of 613. So we may say, you know, what if someone says that eh, they're mostly good, 99.9% good. Maybe we could just ignore that. The law is clear. Unless someone accepts it wholesale, it's equivalent to them accepting nothing. 
Because there's really only one thing that you need to accept. You need to accept the total dominion of God. That's the only thing that matters. The second someone says one ruling, one directive of the master is not valid. I don't agree with it. It doesn't make sense to me. If you ignore one directive, you're ignoring the whole thing because you're ignoring the fact that the Almighty has total dominion. The message of Sinai is that we're slaves of God. That's the message. Of course, it doesn't say it explicitly, but that is echoing behind every statement of of the Torah and certainly at Sinai. In our idealized state, the Jewish nation, we're a nation of people that are entirely enslaved to God and totally submitting ourselves to God. Abraham, at the covenant of the parts, he's told, your children will be that nation. You have earned the right to have your descendants be that nation. They're going to be numerous as the stars. They're going to be indispensable as the stars. They're going to have the land of Israel. They're going to be that nation. And you know what, Abraham? I'm going to tell you how I'm going to do it. I'm going to describe to you the process through which the nation will be conditioned, will be prepared, will be primed, will be refined into being that nation. They're going to spend several hundred years in a slavery-building, perfecting model, and then there's going to be the exodus, and then they're going to leave with great wealth, and then they're going to be ready. This is not a curse. This is not bad news. This is just the description of how it's going to play out. It's a package deal. He's told what the goal is and how the goal is going to be achieved. It's not like there's good news and bad news. There's good news and there's more good news. It's painful, but ultimately it's constructive. It's beneficial. Abraham doesn't resist. This is exactly what he signed up for. He signed up, we signed up, to be this nation, whatever it takes. Abraham was willing to forfeit his life for God. The Jewish people collectively are becoming that nation as well. And the Egyptian experience is all about that. And we're told that the nation that enslaves us is going to be judged. Part of the process. First become slaves of Pharaoh. God's going to judge the Egyptians. And as a result of that, the nation is going to have their focus reoriented, their allegiances reshuffled, and they're going to submit themselves to God. The Jewish people will leave with great wealth. Of course, it means that they're going to leave with physical, material wealth. But this also perhaps doesn't, does evoke the fact that we, we came in with spiritual gold, needs a little bit of refining. And over the course of these several hundred years, punctuated by the Exodus, the gold is going to be refined and we're going to leave with great wealth, the spiritually refined gold of the Exodus. God sends Moshe. Go check up on the Jewish people. We need to find out where they're holding. Moses already went once and it was a total failure. He comes a second time. And he gives a message of hope. He gives a message of optimism. And the nation is so encumbered with work. They can't even hear what he has to say. 
And God says, okay, mission accomplished. Now it's time to go back to Pharaoh. And we ask the question, wait a minute. Do we need them on board? If yes, we haven't gotten any approval. They haven't even responded. Do we not need them on board? Well, then why go to them to begin with? Here's the answer. In order for the nation to be ready for the exodus, they have to finish the part that they're totally enslaved to Pharaoh. Again, it's a two-step process. Total enslavement to Pharaoh? Okay, now we can start the exodus. Total transfer of that from allegiance to Pharaoh to allegiance to God. Moshe goes to speak to the Jewish people and says, okay, we're going to save you. And they couldn't even hear that. They had become total slaves of Pharaoh. There was no hope outside of Pharaoh. And only once that's verified can the process of transferring that total submission begin. Once they have no hope besides Pharaoh, okay, now it's possible for them to develop no hope outside of God. And these plagues, this is not just a convenient way to force Pharaoh's hand to let the Jewish people go. This is all the process, the second part of the process, transferring that allegiance, educating the Jewish people, educating Pharaoh, showing the Jewish people that their erstwhile master is just a puppet in the hands of God. An empty suit. Pharaoh is helpless. Targeted plagues. Jewish people are, are, are seeing that the Egyptians are totally vulnerable to God. Your Egyptian neighbor is smitten, is stricken, and you're totally safe. The tornado pitches out the houses on the street. Every Egyptian house is stricken. Every Jewish house is spared. Each plague is tit for tat for the behavior of the Egyptians. This is demonstrating that the Almighty has total dominion over everything. Every part of nature is subject to the will of God. There's no part that's spared. Not the water, not the heavens, not life and death, not the animals. Everything is in the hands of God. Pharaoh has been given education But ultimately, it's about the Jewish people. They see Pharaoh's education. They see that Pharaoh is not the ultimate power. He's just a pawn in the hands of God. And now the Jewish people can see, okay, we made a mistake. Let's go one level up and realize that Pharaoh himself has zero power. It's only God that has the power. The goal of the plague is not just to redeem the Jewish people from their plight. Of course, after five plagues, Pharaoh... Surrenders, throws up the white flag of surrender and says, okay, you can leave. And God says, no, we're going to harden his heart. The education, the refinement has not yet been completed. I want to add an idea. Was the year of the plagues, was that a pleasant year for the Jewish people? Or was that a painful year for the Jewish people? Think about it. When the plagues start, the Jewish people are at their absolute spiritual nadir. Total slaves of Pharaoh. In their minds, there's only one power. It's Pharaoh, it's the Egyptian way of life. Any message that 
contradicts that, doesn't even get through to them. And now they see Egypt brought to their knees. All the water turns to blood. So we look at it in hindsight, the Jewish people are being saved straight. But at the time, you would imagine that the people are viewing their own safety net, their own comfort as totally eroding. You imagine that they view that their situation is is completely deteriorating in front of their eyes. This is what they view as their support system, as their guardrails. And now it's just crumbling all around them. We ask the question, how can Egypt be the model for future redemptions when Egypt, they got a year uh, headway, they got a year warning before the Exodus? The answer is no. The Exodus was still a surprise because this whole process has to go in opposition, has to contradict and conflict with their perspective at the time. At the time, total slaves of Pharaoh. And when they see Pharaoh suffering, it's painful for them as well. It's been pointed out that the Jewish people were fishermen in, in, in Egypt. In fact, when they complain as a result of the events in, in the book of, of Numbers after the leave Sinai, they muse and reminisce about all the fish that they ate in Egypt. What happened by the first plague? The first plague, all the water turns to blood. And the verse is explicit that all the fish died. Imagine how terrifying it is if your entire livelihood evaporates overnight. You're a fisherman and there's not a single living fish in the whole country. That's what happened to the Jewish people during the first plague. They were fishermen. All the fishermen are dead. How does that feel when your entire source of livelihood overnight evaporates? But what happens, the Midrash tells us, that when a Jew would take a glass of water, they would be able to sell it to the Egyptian and it would remain water. Whereas if a Jew had a glass of water and the Egyptian grabbed it, it would automatically turn into blood. That's what the Midrash tells us. What's happening here is a shift in the economy of the Jewish people. The entire economy was based upon fishing. That is done. There's not a live fish in the country. There's a new economy. It's called the God economy. And the Almighty is going to make all the Jewish people rich. But that's terrifying. Their entire world is being upended. And maybe we could suggest at the time living the way they were, this was a tremendous upheaval to their way of life. And maybe to a certain degree, the exodus itself was a surprise for the Jewish people. And let's look about the matzah, finally. We ask the question, is the matzah the bread of slaves or is the matzah the bread of free men? The answer is yes. The matzah is the bread of slaves And our status as slaves did not change with the Exodus. The only thing that changed is the master. Now we are servants of God. The verse tells us, we say it in the Shema, I am Hashem your God, 
who took you out of the land of Egypt? Why did God take us out of the land of Egypt? To be a God for you. I am a your God. The objective of the Exodus was not saving a nation that was suffering. Of course, that's part of it. But the objective of the Exodus is to complete the process of the iron crucible of the refinement of the Jewish people to make them ready for showtime. To be your God. Rashi comments over there. This is in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verse 41. This is why I redeemed you, so that you accept my decrees. The objective of the enslavement is to craft us into perfect slaves for the time for Pharaoh. The Exodus, with its miracles, with its wonders, with its plagues, redirected that submission and instead made us God slaves who are subject to his decrees. The essence of Pesach, the essence of the matzah, the essence of the freedom is the idea that there is only one kind of true freedom. And that is where someone is subject to no one besides for God. To the degree that we are subject to any other force or being, to the degree that we are subject to any foreign gods or to any foreign masters, that's the degree that we still are enslaved and we're still subject to Pharaoh. It's interesting, the Talmud is very unambiguous about this. The Talmud tells us that the Yed Zaharah is equivalent to chametz, to leavened bread. The Yed Zaharah is the anti-matzah. Matzah means you're subject to God alone, total freedom. Chametz means you're subject to the Yed Zaharah. There's a foreign God who is in charge of you. When we examine our homes, when we look in every cranny of the cabinets, and the closets of our homes to try to find a tiny speck of chametz. That is all illustrative of the fact that what happened at the Exodus is not a one-time event. It is the objective of our lives. We talk about Pesach being the bedrock of the Jewish nation and behind every mitzvah because that's what Torah is about. That's what mitzvahs are about. It's all about becoming subject to God, to be God's nation. This is our national mandate, to constantly take the essence of Pesach and the essence of the Exodus and relive it in the way we behave. Everything that someone attributes to being its own power, to wielding its own independent influence on a person, that is a testament that to a certain degree, Pharaoh is still in charge. To a certain degree, you are not, we are not completely free. I saw something really interesting this year. There is a custom to wear a kittle on Passover Eve, on the Seder Eve. What is a kittle? A kittle is a totally white garment. It's a very simple garment. And it's a garment that's worn a few times throughout the year. Some people wear it on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, almost everyone wears it. It's also the garment that you wear traditionally under a chuppah when you're getting married. And it's the garment in which you are going to be buried in. It's a very simple white garment that's called a kittel. Why do we wear a kittel on Pesach? So you could say, there's a lot of reasons why you could say it. And you think about it. There's something you can be buried with. Gets your attention. 
you were in Yom Kippur, gets your attention, there's some sort of overlap. There's a lot of different answers that you could give. I saw something interesting this year that this is emblematic of the education that we got at Egypt and the education that we get throughout our lives. In our childhood, in our adolescence, we have big plans. What, what am I going to accomplish in my life? What am I going to do? How am I going to make my money? What's my life going to be all about? And as we grow up, the Almighty has plans for us. And those plans ultimately triumph over our plans. And despite the fact that we have in our head, we envision what it's going to be, ultimately the will of God prevails. And this is the equivalent of a nation, an army that's captured. What do they do? They raise the white flag of surrender. So too. This is what I heard. It's a kind of a Hasidic idea. Every time we get a white hair in our head, it's a, it's a small little flag that says, oh, you know what, God, you win this one. You win this round. You win this round. And as we grow up and as we get older and older, we realize that really God's winning every round. On Pesach, we put on a kittel. On Pesach, we have a festival about faith, a festival about freedom. It's a garment that's entirely white. It's not just a hair over here, a hair over there. It's not this piecemeal recognition of the authority of God. It's total, complete subjugation to the will of God. We recognize that ultimately he is the only power. And I would imagine that that sentiment is probably easier for us to have this year when we realize that the mightiest nations, the most powerful armies, the most powerful economies, this world which is so advanced with a tiny microbe smaller than anything you could see with your, with your naked eye, smaller than, the, than even the bacteria, tiny, tiny, can bring everything to its knees. I think to a certain extent we could say that what's happening to us, what we're experiencing, is a little bit about what happened to Pharaoh. Jewish people... What do we see? We see Pharaoh, the mightiest nation, the mightiest economy, the strongest army. They've controlled us for 200 some odd years. They have all the power. They have all the might. And then something invisible happens. And we see again and again and again that they're helpless, they're hopeless, they're totally in the hands of God. And I would suggest, again, this is not my idea. This is something that we all see. What's happening? A $2.2 trillion relief effort. If I told you this a year ago, you wouldn't imagine. The government's going to spend $2.2 trillion. Why? Because a tiny virus is going to just change the whole world and everyone's going to be terrified. Everyone's going to feel totally vulnerable and totally insecure. I think the lesson or one of the lessons of the events that are happening to us is is a very Pesach kind of lesson. And that is to the degree that we trust the state, the, the local, the municipality government, the federal government, the U.S. Army, the World Health Organization, your steady paycheck, the fact that your business, it's just going up. It's just this 
hockey stick growth. Nothing could stop this culture. Nothing can throw a chink into this society that we've built. The fact that we're going to have things, that the supply line, the groceries will be stocked. There's always going to be something nice to watch, some sports to watch on television. Everything is just evaporating in front of us. I'm not saying anything other than the fact that there's definitely a Pesach kind of lesson for us to absorb from what's happening. It's the time that we realize that everything is in the hands of God. Everything. Totally. And yes, we realize that there's going to be pipelines that the Almighty is going to present to us. You're going to have your pipelines and give you your, your benefit, your, your, your income, your family, your life, your vitality it comes from God. Don't confuse the pipeline from the source. You have a job. Great. You're rich. Fantastic. Realize that it's from God. You're healthy. You're strong. You're vital. You have a good family. Amazing. Realize it's from God. You live in a good country with freedoms. It's wonderful. But ultimately recognize that everything is in the hands of God. That's the lesson of Pesach. That is the freedom that we covet. That's the security, really, that we can have in our lives. Because we see there is no security elsewhere. We see that all the institutions that we thought were totally impregnable, were totally triumphant overall, can just melt in an instant from nothing. It's a good reminder that the Almighty is in charge. I think it's a very powerful Pesach lesson. But ultimately, it's important for us to remember, this is the time of freedom. This is the time of the matzah. It is a time where we recognize that our true freedom lies solely in the fact that we are totally subjected to God. That is our superpower. That makes, that's, that is what makes our nation great. When we talk about a chosen nation, this is what we refer to. Yes, it was difficult. Yes, there was suffering. But ultimately, that was constructive. And every Pesach, just like Abram was eating matzah before the Pesach story, Lot was eating matzah before the Pesach story, we're going to eat matzah during the Pesach time. We have to recognize that this is the period that we realize, ultimately, it's only God in control. I'm not saying not to cash your uh, check that you get from the government. Cash it. Recognize It's ultimately the nation, the world, it's nothing but a puppet in the hands of the Almighty. So may we all have a festival that we're safe, we stay safe, and we have a great time with our family. Most people are going to have much smaller seders than they were anticipating because, you know, guests don't really work out. You can't have guests or your elderly parents. It's not safe, whatever it is. It's going to be very... Different kind of experience, different kind of Pesach. Hopefully everyone's going to have a happy, healthy Pesach. And we're going to absorb the messages that are most potent in these days. The message of freedom and freeing ourselves, shaking ourselves from the subjugation of all the other foreign leaders. My email address is rabbiwalbajima.com. I look forward to hearing any comments, any questions, any feedback from my dear friends and listeners. This was an absolute joy. Chach Sameach. And may we experience a 
month of salvation and redemption, not only for us, but for the entire Jewish people and all our Jewish brethren.